Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is Alternatives in Multi-Asset Portfolios and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Maddie Desner, head of the Investment Specialist Team in the Americas within Multi-Asset Solutions, and I will be your moderator for today's episode. Joining me for our discussion is Jeff Geller, Chief Investment Officer, Multi-Asset Solutions, and Brian McCann, Portfolio Manager, Private Equity Group, both within J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having us, Maddie. Happy to be here. As most investors know, we are dealing with an environment right now where return expectations are low and correlations are high, right? Asset classes are moving together. And in that kind of environment, alternatives is a critically important tool to deliver outcomes for investors. So today we are talking to two investors within J.P. Morgan Asset Management who are thinking through these challenges all the time. Brian McCann has joined us from the private equity team and has focused over the last 13 years in helping companies through many stages of development. And Jeff Geller is the CIO and portfolio manager in the multi-asset solutions team. And he happens to oversee some of our most flexible portfolios that actually leverage alternatives to a significant extent. So both of these gentlemen tend to struggle with the issues around alternatives, often in managing portfolios for clients. Jeff, the first question is for you. I wanted to talk about how you think about long-term capital markets assumptions, our expectations for returns. We all know that the expectation for a 60-40 portfolio is five and a quarter percent, where it used to be eight and nine percent. So investors aren't getting the returns that they need out of their portfolios just from traditional asset classes. So that means you have to reach a little bit further into other asset classes and tools to be able to deliver those returns for clients. And I know that you have leveraged all alternatives in portfolios where you're able to do that in your opportunity set. Perhaps talk us through how you think about using alternatives as a tool to achieve those outcomes that clients are not going to get from the traditional asset classes in their portfolio. Sure. Well, again, one thing that's important that you're mentioning is the fact that all of the decisions are anchored around the challenge presented by what's implied by the long-term capital market assumptions. And again, what's important is that we want to have every lever in the toolbox. So you start with how much can we accomplish in public markets, either through asset allocation tilts or through alpha from underlying managers in traditional asset classes. And if we do a good job, we might be able to move from that five and a quarter to six, six and a half. What we're finding is institutional clients increasingly are looking for something closer to seven and a half to eight net, which is why we tend to look at how do we close that gap, and the focus has largely been on private markets, primarily private equity and private credit. But the approach is generally one where we want to be opportunistic. We are not necessarily trying to fill a bucket to reach a specific allocation. And in every case, we've got to believe that it naturally crowds out what we could do in public markets. Otherwise, we wouldn't invest. Great. And now I want to pick up on something specific that you just said, which is most of your clients in the institutional space are looking for that 75 to 8% net. That's the key, right? It's about delivering net of fees results. 
So how do you think about the expense profile and the expense of investing in private equity? And then we'll turn to Brian to ask him the same question in terms of the underlying managers that we choose to put into portfolios. Sure. I would, first of all, make it a bit broader than private equity because it's not only what we choose to include, but what do we exclude as well. So to reach that 75 to 8% goal, generally we have de-emphasized diversified hedge fund allocations in our portfolios because when you're anchored around either zero rates on cash or 2% cash rates, it's really hard to look at a diversified hedge fund portfolio is helping you reach that 75 to 8% goal. So when we say we've emphasized private markets, we've generally done that by de-emphasizing diversified hedge fund allocations. I think when we look at private markets, it would be broad enough to include both private equity and private credit. And I think we tend to look at the opportunities that we are accessing. So Brian, how do you think about expenses in the context of looking for the right investments? Because obviously that's a key determinant of success here. Absolutely. Without question, private equity is certainly on face a very expensive asset class, given the annual management fees and the share of profits that accrue to the managers. What we do at the end of the day, you know, we're all in this for net returns. We're looking to back managers that have proven that they can outperform under various economic cycles so that they can deliver an attractive private equity return for our investors. So really what we've done to kind of look through this from a holistic standpoint is, in addition to what we would consider general blind pool commitments, blind partnerships, we've augmented our portfolios with a fair amount of secondaries and direct investments. The directs, and when I mean by direct, I'm saying we're going to co-invest with an underlying manager or we're going to go directly into a company. We're not going to go through a fund initially. When we do those investments, generally speaking, we're investing on a no-fee, no-carry basis. So if you were to look at the expense profile that's generated from what, again, I described as a typical blind pool commitment to an underlying partnership, and you compare that with one where you've incorporated directs, that's a very different expense profile. And can you give us a sense of what the expense savings percentage-wise is for something like that, if you go in blind pool comparison to something that blends in some direct investments? I don't have hard and fast data with me on that, but it's certainly significant, especially given the capital that we're talking about. It is not uncommon for us to invest $100, $150, 200000000 to a partnership, and then directs we have... I would say, almost equal capacity for that. So if, let's just say, you just did a simple 100 to a partnership, 100 to a direct, you're essentially leveraging or averaging your cost basis down by half. That's great. Thanks for that. So Jeff, I want to focus on an asset allocation question, and maybe we can be specific given what Brian just said. How do you think about funding sources and allocations to private equity and alternatives in general relative to traditional asset classes that you have exposure to? And then more specifically, do you think about it differently depending on whether or not it's a partnership versus a direct investment versus a secondary? Yeah, well, there are two things. One is before thinking about a funding source, we think about what's the target allocation that we have in the portfolio for illiquid investments. And there, I think it's important, uh, not only in terms of the return potential net of fees, but what's appropriate for the client as well. So when I think about a typical institutional client and 
let's think about corporate DB plans, which is really where most of our experience has been in these more flexible mandates. In addition to taking into account benefit payments that they've got to make every month, we also have to take into account what their funded status is. So their time horizon, if they're 85% funded, is very different than their time horizon if they're 100 or 105% funded. So again, the appetite for large allocations to illiquid investments are very, very different for the client that's reaching for return that's more underfunded. So that becomes important. And that will make a big difference in terms of what the targets that we're shooting for and the bite sizes that we communicate to Brian and the private equity group. But the other thing that we have to make decisions about, because every allocation that we're making to private markets and when we get distributions, it's effectively we're running it as one multi-asset class portfolio. And these are all decisions being made between public and private markets. So when we're getting capital calls, we've got to pull money out of the markets that we like least. And when we're getting distributions, we've got to allocate more to the markets we like more. And I'll give you two examples. In 2015, we had a very positive view on U.S. equities and a very negative view on emerging market equities. At that time, every capital call from the private equity group was funded out of emerging market equities until we brought it to zero because we wanted to maintain the focus and overweight to U.S. equities and effectively by moving more aggressively out of VM to to fund private equity. Same thing in 2016. We had a very positive view on high yield and being long credit given the dislocations that we saw in the fourth quarter of 2015 going into the first quarter of 2016. The natural funding source for private credit would be high yield, but we wanted to maintain overweight positions to high yield in 2016 and funded every capital call for private credit out of core bonds. Again, to basically sell the asset class that we favor the least or that we have a negative view on and maintain the overweight positions of the asset classes that we favor. That's great. Thanks so much for giving us that color. And I think the unique perspective that you and your team take when it comes to allocating to private markets helps you get to your asset allocation views, right? Helps pivot the portfolio to where you think the opportunities are best. So when we think about whether or not you're using alternatives to achieve returns or mitigate risk, I'm thinking maybe you're going to say both, right? Because it depends on the environment and depends on what the funding source is, and it depends on what your view on the capital markets is today. Yeah, and I think one thing that we've had to think about, certainly as we have more mature allocations and we have a number of clients that we've been investing in these more diversified portfolios across public and private markets for over five years, is also balancing the risk overall in the portfolio. So while the primary focus has been on the illiquid markets, we've also have diversified into some long-short equity strategies to mitigate and balance some of the risk that we're taking in private equity. So everything is basically thinking about not only where are we leaning towards the asset classes that we most favor or lean against the markets that we have a more negative view on, but also thinking about how we balancing risk overall in the portfolio because clients are concerned about drawdown risk. The drawdown risk and liquidity risk, right? So liquidity risk, Brian, I'm sure is a question you get all the time. We get it as well from the multi-asset class perspective. Is there something you can tell us about the J-curve, the investing profile for private equity? Has it changed recently? How do you think about mitigating that for your direct investors or for clients of Jeff and the multi-asset solutions team? Absolutely. Liquidity is a huge concern when you're speaking about private equity, just given how the investing horizons are much, much longer than 
most every other asset class. Really, what we try to do is, you know, as I mentioned before, when we look at building a client a long-term private equity program, we're looking to incorporate partnerships, directs, and secondaries. And reason being, each one of those three asset classes has a unique cash flow profile. If you were to, again, just generalize, partnerships, generally speaking, they're drawing down capital during the first five years. That's the investment period during the partnership. The general partners then going through building a portfolio, enacting their value creation program, and then harvesting. A very long time horizon. You're looking at anywhere from five to seven years before you're generally seeing your first bouts of liquidity. If we can complement those investments with secondary investments, which generally you're buying more seasoned partnership interests, and then with some directs that, generally speaking, have a shorter hold period, that helps mitigate some of that liquidity risk. In addition, it also helps mitigate the J-curve risk because, again, from a partnership standpoint, the capital contributed for fees and expenses towards the earlier stages of a partnership's life have an outsized impact on the overall return. Hence, returns are generally negative in the beginning years before, as I said, the portfolio has gotten a chance to gain traction. So by augmenting those partnerships with directs and secondaries, you help mitigate that return risk. Brian, given what you've described in terms of the opportunity set with secondaries and partnerships and direct investments, we know how critical manager selection can be in private markets and private equity in particular. What are some of the important things that we should be considering as we look at evaluating private equity managers? For us, our focus has historically always been on the small to mid-market. And we have backed and continue to back managers that have very long-standing track records. In many instances, our relationships with several of our GPs go back 20, 25, and 30 years. Really, what we're looking for is managers that are truly owner-operators. We don't generally partner with a general partner or a manager that is looking to employ financial engineering. We're not looking to lever up a company and you know hope the environment goes well and they sell it at a higher price. We're looking for managers that can go in and institute fundamental change within an organization to substantially improve a specific company's operating profile and then sell for a profit. So that's really where we've been focusing our time. Lately, again, given the very high-priced environment, secondaries have been a very big challenge for us. There's a lot of capital chasing those opportunities right now, and the buyers of secondary interests are aggressively employing leverage on top of that. With these interests that are coming to market, which we found to be very low quality, the prices that are being paid are just something that we're not going to be able to compete with. And when you think about investing in these individual investments, whether it's the secondaries or the direct investments or the co-investments, how do portfolio managers in your team work with one another? Is there an investment committee that you've joined? How do you collaborate? Great question. We're all generalists within our group. Portfolio managers are not assigned to individual investment types. On the contrary, we actually can look at everything. We're very, very opportunistic. We tend to organize ourselves based on relationships with individual managers. But that's not to say that you know someone on one relationship can't work with another general partner. The way we generally structure ourselves or the way that we go about evaluating opportunities, we form a deal team, and that deal team consists of a senior member and a few junior members. 
they go out, they perform all of the diligence, and they share their entire body of work with our entire group as each of our portfolio managers constitutes the investment committee because we make investment decisions collectively as a group. And again, we think a very unique aspect of our group is that each of us will personally invest alongside all of our clients in every investment opportunity that we decide to move forward with. And quite frankly, this has helped us really be very nimble as we're evaluating all types of investment opportunities because we can transfer our energy and our resources out of ones that we're not looking favorably upon into those that we think are much more attractive. So Jeff, Brian talked about the evolution of the strategy that they've been following and some of the valuation challenges that they have had within the team. I know that within your portfolios, you have also evolved over the last five years, just given the opportunity set that you saw prior to this current environment where valuations have gotten extreme and what you're seeing today, in particular, some of the discussions that you've been having around private credit. So help us understand what you're doing in that space. Sure. Well, just by way of review, I mean, when we do allocate the private credit in particular, it's a part of the portfolio that we expect to outperform high yield. But we want to introduce exposures that look different from high yield as well so that we're getting some diversification. Where we might have been three to five years ago is the focus would have been much more on middle market lending strategies in the U.S. What's happened is as more money has come into that space, the focus has been much more on middle market lending. And and similar to what Brian's describing, returns have come down. So whereas you might have been looking at unlevered returns of 9, 10% plus, now unlevered returns. If you're senior in the capital structure, unlevered may be somewhere between 6 to 7, maybe as high as 8. So returns have come down, and one choice is to stay with those strategies and employ more leverage. What we've opted for instead is to focus on being a bit more opportunistic and moving where we are seeing more opportunities, which have primarily been more in Europe and more private lending strategies that have been linked to the overall health of the U.S. consumer. So we're getting more diversified collateral types. We're also getting exposure to different managers in different areas of geography. What's been common is that obviously similar to what Brian is describing, we prefer managers that have experience managing through multiple business cycles because we know as we go through the cycle that there will be extension risk on some of the private credit strategies. You want to be senior in the capital structure. You want to know that these are loans that are generally amortizing over time and that you don't need some heroic assumptions in terms of exits. But the important thing is that we want to be opportunistic and recognize that the puck has moved from where we were five years ago and that it's important that we're moving away from middle market lending strategies in the U.S., which are just less interesting. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the J.P. Morgan Center for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on August 7, 2018. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II and MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs as non-independent research 
have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197601586K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 201120355E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Sections 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. 
for all other countries in APAC to intended recipients only. Copyright 2018, JPMorgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.